0: up in a small town in Northeast Ohio, the youngest of three brothers. My mother was obsessed with the Kennedy family, so she named us John, Robert, and Ted. Every year, she'd make us put on suits and pose for her camera in front of a wooden fence in an attempt to recreate the famous 1960 photograph of the Kennedy brothers in Hyannisport, taken by Italian journalist Oriana Fallaci. My brothers were dead ringers for the Kennedys, perfectly capturing their playful, aristocratic charm. But, despite my mother's best efforts, I never managed to live up to my namesake. No matter how much Crisco oil she put in my hair, she couldn't overcome my powerful cowlick, and instead of Ted Kennedy's well-maintained coiffure, my hair resembled some sort of electrified beaver pelt. After the first few years of this ritual, she could no longer afford to purchase new suits for us, so we would borrow them from family friends, or scrounge through thrift store bargain bins, and my suit never fit properly, the shoulders bunched, the sleeves hanging several inches over the tips of my fingers. My mother would make a 3 by 2 foot print of each photograph, and the most recent addition would be hung in a place of honor in the parlor of our home. Most people would politely ignore my shabby appearance and say, those are some good-looking boys you have, Mrs. Steffens. I'll bet they'll be congressmen someday. The only one brave enough to tell the truth was Mr. Spencer, the old man who tuned our piano. The first time he came to our house, he took one look at me in the family portrait and said, that's the ugliest Kennedy I ever seen. While my brothers were accepted to Ohio State on athletic scholarships, I did very poorly both on the athletic field and in the classroom, and dropped out of high school my senior year. My mother and I often got into fights, and she would accuse me of tarnishing our family's image, ruining her perfect Camelot with my laziness and perpetual troublemaking. One of the Kennedy children, Rosemary, was born mentally retarded, and the father, Joe Sr., had her lobotomized in an unsuccessful attempt to cure her behavior, placing her under the custodianship of nuns in Wisconsin. I didn't expect my mother to set upon me with a scalpel, but the parallels between Rosemary and me were keenly felt, so I decided to leave town. On my 19th birthday, a carnival came to the city fairgrounds, and with it, a perfect opportunity to escape. I asked a Carney who the manager was, and he directed me to a dingy trailer situated behind the cotton candy machines. I knocked on the door, and after several minutes of muffled rustlings from within, a young woman in a tattered, low-cut Van Halen t-shirt emerged. I asked if she was the owner, but she merely gave me a sheepish grin and hurried past. I couldn't help but noticed she had cotton candy syrup smeared over her lips, and between her breasts. A man's head popped out of the doorway, and he glared at me. What do you want, kid? he asked. I told him I was inquiring about a job in the carnival, he looked me over for a few times and said, Tell you what, you give me your watch, I'll give you a job. He was referring to the watch my grandparents had given me as a graduation present. Italian stainless steel chronograph with a mother-of-pearl inlay. Of course, I never actually graduated, but my grandparents were never informed of this fact. My mother once told me that Robert Kennedy wore the same exact model the day he was assassinated, and she scolded me whenever I forgot to wear it, It reminding me the watch was a symbol of American royalty. I thought over the carnival manager's offer and I decided I was through with vainglorious aspirations of greatness, with chasing the Kennedy mystique. I casually slipped the embossed leather band off my wrist and placed it in the manager's sticky, syrupy hand. He stuffed the watch in his pocket and said, "'Welcome to the carnival,' slamming the trailer door in my face. I knocked, and the door cracked open a few inches. "'What should I do now?' I asked. With a venomous whisper, he said, You can start by never knocking on this door again. I spent the rest of the day roaming the fairgrounds, taking in the chaotic atmosphere that was to be my home. The hoarse sales pitch of the barkers, the gleeful madness of the merry-go-round calliope, the electric hum of the ancient power generators. At sundown, I sat on the grass, watching the workers tear down the rides and for the move to the next town, once magnificent whirling and twirling monoliths compacted into a caravan of tractor trailers. I followed a group of carnies into the back of a Wells cargo van and caught my last glimpse of Ohio before the metal door clanged shut and shrouded us in darkness. The engine started, and I felt the ground move beneath us. I rubbed my wrist Where my watch had been, and smiled at the smooth texture of my skin in its absence, like the skin of an infant. No longer would I grovel in the shadow of Hyannis Port, for I had been born again. I was a carny. Any romantic illusions I had about the life of a carny were dashed the day I received my first paycheck. The net total was a negative number, which I assumed was a mistake. I showed the check to another carny, and he said, No mistake, you owe the manager 50 bucks. It turns out I was charged $35 to stay at our trailer park lodgings at the local armory. $50 to rent the space for the shooting gallery I operated, $40 to replace the stuffed animals won as prizes, and a $10 electrical hookup fee. On top of it all, I had to pay for my meals, which consisted of nachos for lunch and corn dogs for dinner. My earnings came exclusively from a percentage of my ticket sales, and, despite America's love affair with firearms, my shooting gallery was a financial bust. Two weeks of back-breaking labor, and I was fifty bucks in the hole. Not wanting to run into the manager, I lay beneath the blurred silver shell of the Gravitron, the popular ride where passengers are plastered to the wall of the spinning machine by centripetal force, the floor gradually giving way beneath them. I let the acceleration of shape and color mesmerize my senses while I contemplated my future as a carny. As often happens when I meditate, my thoughts turned to the Kennedys, whose legend had been drilled into me by my mother since birth. I wondered how the accident-prone Kennedy men, seemingly genetically predisposed to tragedy, would fare as carnival workers. Perhaps John Jr. would have been sawed in half by the Go Gator kitty ride, a fate that befell one of the mechanics that worked on our crew the alligator-shaped train dragging his body along the tracks, while demented calliope music played in the background. Maybe instead of dying in a skiing accident, Michael Kennedy would have fallen asleep at the wheel after a long day of work, and driven a tow motor at full speed into a hot dog stand. JFK wouldn't have been felled by a sniper's bullet from the Texas School Book Depository, but a whiskey bottle tossed from the Ferris wheel might be plausible. As I mentally assigned the Kennedys their violent fates, the Gravitron sputtered to a stop, and the dazed passengers stumbled out of the hulking chrome compartment. Just after the last patron left the ride, a slick-looking character in an ultra-sway tracksuit darted inside. Before the ride jock could protest, the tall, wiry stranger was on his way out, his pockets bulging with unknown contents. Intrigued, I followed him as he weaved his way through the crowd of marks, which is what we call the paying customers, Hightailed it for the empty lot behind the diesel power generators. When he was certain he was alone, he emptied his pockets onto the grass, spilling out watches, cell phones, jewelry, loose change, dental floss, packs of latex condoms. He sorted the contraband by retail value and stored it in Tupperware containers he hid behind the generators, except for the condoms, which he returned to his pockets, and the dental floss, which he left on the ground. Before he could flee the scene, I approached him and asked him what he planned to do with his stolen goods. He looked me over, not unlike the carnival manager, and said, I'm going to sell them to pawn shops, or maybe other carnies. Why would a carny want a lady's necklace, I asked him. Some suckers will buy anything, he replied. It's called capitalism. And that's how I met Tree. Tree got his name from his 6'5", 150-pound frame. He was the first to introduce me to the fine art of collecting shake, which is what Carney's call the personal belongings that people lose on roller coasters and other high-speed rides. Shake was the great economic equalizer, turning my deficit into a surplus. Now I could afford to supplement my corndog dinners with the occasional tasty freeze or snow cone. On a particularly lucrative day, I might even splurge on a spindle of cotton candy. But thanks to Tree, I was on Easy Street. In addition to Shake, Tree taught me to rummage through the garbage cans on people's tree lawns the night before trash pickup, a weekly routine we referred to as Junk Night. We mostly looked for old clothes, which we sold to the new Carnies. In addition, we also stockpiled beer and sold it to Carnies by the can. We were the face of fairground entrepreneurship. One night, Junk night, Tree and I were rooting through garbage in a nearby suburb when we felt the white flash of car headlights on our shoulders. We hid behind a minivan parked in the driveway and watched as the approaching vehicle stopped several yards in front of us. The driver stepped out, and we immediately recognized him as the carnival manager. He sidled over to the passenger side and retrieved an unconscious girl, who he slung over his shoulder and deposited on the front lawn. He wiped his hands on his blue jeans, and casually returned to his Toyota Land Cruiser, his tail lights receding into pinpoints down the endless suburban boulevard. Tree and I left our hiding place to examine the girl and discovered she was swaddled in a thick blanket of blue cotton candy. We tore off the artificially sweetened Mackinac and thin, wispy tufts Revealing her naked body beneath. She looked to be about 16 or 17 years old, and though she was breathing normally, she was completely passed out. We slid some ragged cutoffs from the dumpster over her pelvis and a torn Metallica t shirt over her torso and carried her to the front porch, where we gently rested her on a plastic deck chair. We collected the strands of cotton candy littering the yard and consolidated them into a single dense cloud, storing our treasure in a black plastic garbage bag. We rang the doorbell and ran like hell down the boulevard, the garbage bag billowing behind us like a parachute. That cotton candy lasted us an entire week. After the carnival moved to Decatur, Illinois, I made the transition from jointy, the carny term for a game operator, to ride jock. As a member of the ride crew, I earned $35 a day in salary for 12 hours of work. I got paid extra for setting up and tearing down the spectaculars, the enormous rides that take six men 10 hours to disassemble. We kept track of the time records on a chalkboard in the cookhouse, and the manager paid us a bonus, we broke a record. And my crew broke records on the Seattle Wheel and the Gravitron my first week on the job, and we celebrated by spending our bonus on St. Ives 40-ounce malt liquor. Tearing down the intricately constructed rides required great precision and teamwork, and after working long hours side-by-side side with the ride crew, I developed a real sense of camaraderie with my fellow Carnies. Most people think of Carnies as dirty, foul-mouthed vagrants on the outer fringes of respectability, but in my experience, the carnival is simply a microcosm of society. There are dreamers, charmers, loners and romantics, wild-eyed wanderers blue-collar pragmatists. Behind the rotting teeth and the ancient mud-cake sneakers, carnies share the same hopes, the same anxieties. Despite my middle-class upbringing, I identified with the plight of the carnies, products of broken homes and demoralizing poverty. I never felt comfortable with my mother's lofty expectations of Kennedy elegance, and my alienation forged a common bond between me and my coworkers. I had never been homeless, had never waited in line for food stamps or unemployment check but I had spent every waking hour disenfranchised by the mistaken identity branded into my skin since birth. From the beginning, I was accepted as a brother, an equal, because the Carnies sensed that, beneath the veneer of my silver spoon past, I was the same as them. And besides, after running away from home, I was as poor as them, too. I just had better-looking teeth. I once asked the foreman of the Gravitron why he became a carny, and he told me that, at first, it was the girls. I got a girl in every small town in Illinois, he said. In Carbondale, I got three. Two of them are sisters. They ain't no blushing roses, neither. Besides the romantic conquests, he found his work deeply satisfying. And as he spoke to me, his chest swelled with pride. The feel of... Cold steel in your hands, the sound of children screaming, the smell of diesel fuel pumping through the power generators. I tell ya, there ain't nothing like it. And when you tear down the machinery, when you tame the massive steel beasts with your bare hands, it's the best feeling in the world. Even better than two sisters at once. As will often happen with the predominantly male crew, the prevailing attitude towards women was fairly misogynistic. The main exception was Tree, who was also by far the best-dressed carny, preferring retro-chic tracksuits and vintage corduroy jackets over grubby jeans and faded REO Speedwagon t-shirts. Tree told me he believed that the most beautiful part of a woman was her mind, and he expressed frustration with his fruitless search for sophisticated women at the carnival. I told him he might have better luck at an art gallery or coffee shop, but he was convinced his soulmate was waiting for him somewhere between the popcorn carts and the skee-ball machines. Tree's vocabulary was limited, his speech coarse and vulgar, his grammar peppered with mistakes, but he never failed to surprise me by discussing the finer points of some esoteric field like abstract impressionism or Japanese floral arranging. In addition, He possessed a comprehensive knowledge of the Kennedy family, rivaled only by my own. We often played a game where one of us would say the name of a Kennedy and the other one had to supply the cause of death. JFK and Robert were easy, both gunned down by assassins, but David and Kathleen were more challenging, casualties of a Demerol and cocaine overdose and a plane crash, respectively. I asked him why he knew so much about the Kennedys, and he said, They're all so glamorous. Who wouldn't want to be a Kennedy? Whenever we traded trivia or drew the Kennedy family tree in the dirt with sticks, I couldn't help but think of my mother, worlds away in Northeast Ohio. Illinois, my present home, is similar geographically, but the ideological chasm between the traveling carnival my mother's white-collar existence is as vast and divisive as an ocean or impenetrable mountain range. To my mother, Aunt tree, and to most people, the Kennedys represent a uniquely American form of royalty, a distinguished clan of charismatic intellectuals playing touch football on the lawn, and glamorous princesses effortlessly charming the most supercilious of socialites. But for me, the Kennedys symbolize concealed depravity, the unspoken darkness hidden behind closet doors and locked in ancient mahogany trunks. My boss, the philandering cotton candy fetishist, would make an excellent Kennedy. My characterization of the Kennedys is unfair, but the byproduct of a lifetime of my mother's relentless propaganda. When John Jr. and his wife Carolyn perished in a plane crash, my mother wore black for a week, a veil enshrouding her tear-stained face, the family's American flag flown at half-mast. The same day, my beloved dog Duke was hit by a station wagon and killed. His dead body was thrown on the front lawn. A four-day feast for scavengers before Friday garbage collection. Tree has a date today with an Asian paleobotanist from Peoria, an expert on using fossilized leaves to determine the Earth's previous topographies. Tree took her ticket for the scrambler and complimented her on the Ansel Adams print on her t-shirt, and they struck up a conversation about aesthetic beauty, a long line of impatient children complaining about the ten minute delay. The carnival is running at full tilt, a mechanized hum of activity from the bumper cars, to the gaming kiosks, to the popcorn carts. Small children suck on popsicles, rolls of tickets wrapped around their sticky fingers. Teenagers loiter in the parking lot and make out behind the power generators. Ride jocks chain-smoke cigarettes, and baritone-voice barkers lure passers-by to the ring-toss and fool the guesser. All the world is aglow with the blinking lights of the spectaculars. As a favor to Tree, I close the inflatable moonwalk early so he can make love to the paleobotanist on a bed of vulcanized rubber. He instructs me to turn on the compressed air cannons once things start heating up. After the lovemaking session, I walk with Tree and his companion through the empty fairgrounds, the last of the carnies piling into the flatbed of a pickup truck. The carnival is ours now, the discarded coke bottles, the paralyzed rides, the ballet of the paper napkins in the wind. All of it. The perfect consummation of such a glorious day is a midnight ride on the ferris wheel, and as Tree pulls the lever, I slowly embark on my shaky ascent to the heavens. From my lofty position and the rickety steel carriage, the world seems so clear, a never-ending cycle of death and rebirth, of highs and lows. I breathe in the rarefied air of popcorn butter and unfiltered cigarettes. I drink Coca-Cola from a 32-ounce plastic holy grail. I tower over kings and soar above the stratosphere. I have no need for Camelot, for knights on shining horses, for my mother's wounded dreams, For I am a phoenix rising, an angel returning, and this whole dark valley is mine.